I'm Beth Bennett. I'm Shelley Schlender. I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Angel Shang. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 7th, 2020. Coming up, CU Boulder scientists Anushri Chatterjee and Prashnat Nagpal explain the pros and cons of using old medicine to fight COVID-19. They describe some new medicines in the future and how to speed up their development. We begin with a look at some of the recent findings on the coronavirus. Two weeks ago, I described how the virus gets into the lung cells it infects. The virus takes advantage of a protein embedded in the cell membrane called angiotensin-converting enzyme. For obvious reasons, let's call it ACE. It's actually ACE2, but I'll stick with ACE for short, or ACE. ACE helps regulate our body's blood pressure, and for some reason that's not well understood, a lot of it is found on these lung cells. The virus attaches here, and the ACE protein acts as a gateway, allowing the virus into the cell. But here's the interesting thing. Not only is ACE stuck in these cell membranes, it is also released by these cells so that it can get into the blood and travel around the body doing its job. The attachment between ACE and the virus is kind of like Velcro. So as Angel will tell you, some scientists propose giving this ACE protein to patients with viral lung disease. The idea is that the ACE protein would sop up the virus and keep it from infecting the vulnerable lung cells. So scientists established that this virus contains a spike protein on its surface that binds directly to the ACE2 protein. They know this because this is the same mechanism that the first SARS virus used years ago to infect cells. It's the same mechanism except this virus binds even more tightly to the ACE protein. In a normal human lung, the ACE protein is found on cells that form delicate tissue deep in the alveoli. These cells are really important for exchanging oxygen to red blood cells. These cells do a lot of things, including producing a surfactant, which reduces surface tension, an important part of making this sensitive membrane work properly. Destruction of these cells by viral infection could explain the severe lung injury observed in COVID-19 patients. ACE protein is also found in the heart, kidneys, blood vessels, and intestines. So knowing that the virus is going to bind to this protein, why not target it? Why not introduce soluble protein to the patient as a decoy? Flood the patient with ACE2 protein and get the virus to bind to the soluble form rather than the ACE protein found in these important lung cells. Indeed, this is a therapeutic approach that's being studied by a large group of researchers at the University of British Columbia, Toronto, and Sweden. They've submitted their initial findings to the journal Cell. They found that soluble ACE2 can reduce viral growth in cell cultures. In the early stage of infection of blood vessel and kidney tissues, soluble ACE2 was able to slow down this infection. This study is just the beginning and has some limitations. The study focused on the early stages of infection, not the later critical stages. This protein is part of a complicated biochemical system that's not simulated in the models. Obviously, we're going to need more studies, but this is one among many targeted therapies that scientists are trying. 
As you just heard, novel treatments for the COVID-19 disease are being proposed and tested. But in the meantime, we're stuck with prevention. Here in Colorado, we're fortunate to have the freedom to move around and conduct necessary business as well as exercise on local trail systems and parks. But how safe is this? Recently, our governor suggested state residents use face masks when they leave their homes for essential functions. Now, these aren't the highly protective masks used by medical professionals, but simple face coverings. This action is being increasingly adopted, but is still a matter of personal choice. Now, I strongly support personal choice, but I also believe it should be informed choice. So let's look at the science underlying this action. First, we need to consider the issue of what exactly is floating around in the air that can get into our lungs to infect us. When people are infected with respiratory viruses, they emit viral particles that can infect others whenever they talk, breathe, cough, or sneeze. These particles are encased in globs of mucus, saliva, and water. Bigger globs fall faster than they evaporate, so they splash down nearby. These are traditionally called droplets. Smaller globs evaporate faster than they fall, leaving dried-out viruses that can linger in the air and drift further afield. These are called aerosols. These small droplets are less than 5 microns across. Now, that's a technical term that means a one millionth of a meter, or way, way too small to see with the naked eye. It's also way too small to be blocked by a t-shirt mask. But if you are coughing and sneezing, a t-shirt will absorb a lot of the big globs or droplets that you're expelling. Now, there are other ways these aerosols can get into you, so let's consider that. In one experimental study, researchers mixed up a solution of virus particles and sprayed it inside a container. The spray was designed to release aerosol-sized particles. Inside the sealed container, these stayed suspended for three hours, but in normal conditions outside, they would fall out of the air a lot faster. Now, when virus particles fall out of the air, they land on surfaces. So the same researchers looked at how long the virus could remain infective on various surfaces, such as cardboard, stainless steel, plastic, and copper. They found that infective virus, that is, virus that can actually infect you, persisted the longest on plastic and stainless steel. The actual number of infective viruses dropped to less than 20% of the original amount. However, there were still some around after as long as 72 hours when they stopped the experiment that were capable of infecting a cell culture. This study was published two weeks ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. In another study, this one done in Wuhan, China during the initial outbreak, researchers measured the virus levels in three different environments. They looked at patient rooms inside hospitals, staff changing rooms inside of hospitals, and public outdoor areas such as parks and shopping malls. They found that suspended aerosol levels were pretty low everywhere. In fact, the highest virus levels in hospitals were in areas where medical staff changed clothes. The scientists speculated that this occurred in areas where protective garments, called PPE, were removed. The PPE could have accumulated virus while the staff was in contact with infected patients. This highlights the importance of good disinfection procedures and good ventilation. But finally, and this is really germane to our lifestyle in Colorado, in open areas like parks where people are spread out, the researchers found no virus particles at all. In fact, the only outdoor areas where any virus was detected were the entrances to a shopping mall and the hospital. So stay away from those places if you can, or wear your masks there. And that study was published in a preprint online journal called BioRxIV, 
on March 10th. Keep in mind that one important part of science is replication, and these studies have not yet been replicated. That said, they do make sense. Aerosols will readily disperse in open air because of wind, and viruses will be, dispo- will be destroyed by ultraviolet and temperature and humidity extremes. This leaves contaminated surfaces as the most likely source of infection. More studies are now quantifying the level of viruses on various surfaces. It's easy to count them, but we still don't know just how many intact viruses have to be taken into your lung to make you sick. Bottom line, it's important to be cautious, but be aware that different environments can pose different risks. On the science calendar, during this week would have been the Conference on World Affairs at the University of Colorado Boulder. The conference has been canceled this year following restrictions due to COVID-19. However, they are holding virtual panels every day this week at 2 p.m. Mountain Time with topics related to COVID-19, including panel titles such as Listen to the Scientists and Humor in Hard Times. Guest panelists include some familiar names to our listeners, including astronomer Seth Shostak, who has been our guest on several past episodes, and Beth Bartell, who used to be a host on How on Earth. These virtual panels are held at 2 p.m. each day and can be streamed through Zoom and YouTube. For more information, see CU Boulder's website on Conference on World Affairs at www.colorado.edu slash CWA. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. People around the world are trying to fight COVID-19, including by using old medicines, such as anti-malaria drugs or a tuberculosis vaccination. Up next, two CU Boulder scientists will explain why there may be a downside to adapting old medications to fight COVID-19. They'll also explain their anguish about why creating new drugs to fight COVID-19 cannot happen as fast as they or anyone would like. And they'll explain why we need to do more and faster for the next pandemic, whether it's a new version of Ebola or SARS or flu or something else, because there will be something else. Anasree Chatterjee and Prasant Nagpal are wife and husband and CU scientists. They have founded the Antimicrobial Regeneration Consortium with the goal of speeding up the creation of antimicrobial medicines. 
They're also developing a way to give people a tiny dose of nanoparticles, basically incredibly tiny microchips, pre-programmed to specifically target a disease such as COVID-19. FDA approval for this approach is at least 18 months out. But once this method is approved, it would mean that a brand new and highly targeted antiviral or antibiotic might be ready within a week. Up next, we speak with these scientists via Skype as they shelter at home with their daughter. Here are Anishri Chatterjee and Prasant Nagpal. They begin by talking about the downsides of using old medicines to fight a new disease. Hi, this is Anushree Chatterjee, and I'm doing COVID research to build new therapeutics and diagnostics. And I'm also the founder of Antimicrobial Regeneration Consortium, an organization to address pandemics and evolving pathogens. Hi, I'm Prashant Nagpal. I'm a faculty at University of Colorado Boulder, and I'm also a co-founder for the Antimicrobial Regeneration Consortium. We'll get into your technology that you've invented that can help go and seek out and destroy different things that invade the body. But before that, I just want to touch base on a drug that is used for basically treating malaria. Another is a vaccine for treating tuberculosis, being something that might be helpful for fighting this virus. Do you think that those might have some merit? People are right now, we are in such a dire situation that we are basically desperately throwing whatever we have at this and hoping something would work. You know, right now we are not going to know. We are not going to know whether the tuberculosis vaccination that is given in India and Pakistan is actually making a difference in how often people get sick there. We don't know that. There are different aspects of this. There's obviously the placebo effect when you give somebody anything, even a sugar packet, you know, just their positive frame of mind and the fact that they're, they think. So th- there is obviously a connection here, a direct connection to your immune cells. So right now, since there is no vaccination, there is no medication. The reason why people are told to stay indoors and, you know, maintain a healthy li- lifestyle is because the hope is that your immune system in a large majority of us will actually be able to address this be able to when they when it interacts with this virus create antibodies in our in our own uh, uh, body and fight this virus do you feel the same way about the malaria drug that's being given people who are doing these clinical trials trying are trying to, to understand they don't have a definitive answer right you know you could give them to patients and on a case by case basis some people may see a positive effect and others may not it could inflame your immune response which could be positive in some cases, but if you dive down deep into the morbidity of coronavirus, part of the reason for death sometimes is the heightened inflamed immune response that leads to a lot of fluid, which prevents people from being able to breathe oxygen or provide that so it gets into your circulation and keeps you alive. I just found the name of that drug, the malaria drug hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquinone. You're cautioning that if somebody takes this, they're doing an experiment on themselves. There's some indication that perhaps it might be helpful. There's some indication that it might actually contribute to what people are referring to as a cytokine storm, which means that if their immune system gets a little too overheated, then the body can inadvertently start attacking its own tissue in a way that can lead to fatality. That's why people are cautioning against 
reading too much into existing anti-malarial drug because, you know, if your immune system wasn't boosted enough, this drug would do wonders. And that would be a positive thing. But in other situations, what could happen is if your immune response is already pretty inflamed, then it could make a hot engine much hotter and make the situation worse. So uh, unfortunately, you know, science will take its time to come up with answers. And this is why we needed to be able to have drugs that will specifically target fragments of that RNA of the virus. Then we would know that we are not targeting anything else. And so right now, what we have as tools for fighting coronavirus in terms of our medical system is more like hatchets. We're, we're having things that can bludgeon it, but nothing that's quite specific for dealing with the virus without causing collateral damage in the rest of the body. Unless it's the body's own immune system that figures out how to fight this and fights it successfully, which is happening in the vast majority of cases. But we're worried about the people who are more susceptible to this and are getting serious diseases. And you think that you have a technology that might help. Could it help now or would it help next time? So that's an important uh, question. Uh, right now, we don't have uh, any solutions that's specific to the virus. And for the other solutions that we, you know, we're talking about, it's um, we, there's no data. What we have is actually a technology that will allow us to create therapeutics against pretty much anything, any virus uh, or, or any other species if required or genes um, in a matter of a week that allows us to target the genetic material of our target, in this particular case, the virus. And this particular platform uh, is called FAST, stands for Facile Accelerated Specific Therapeutic. The whole idea is to be able to create uh, therapeutics very fast. Yes, Anishree Chatterjee, when we talked before, you had said that it is 10 to 20 years out before it actually can be out for people to use are you still on that timeline with what you have? Our technology, we believe that timeline will be much shorter, actually. Uh, that's more of a conventional pharmaceutical pipeline, which is typically 10 to 15 years. Because our technology is very rational, the way we target uh, the virus, we have brought in different sorts of approaches, including computational biology, nanotechnology, synthetic chemistry, synthetic biology, all of this, these different aspects have allowed us to create a very robust platform that can generate therapeutics in a week. And this is an exceptional platform. So, we, you know, it's a paradigm shift. Have you in your laboratories created a nanoparticle that can fight the COVID-19 virus? We are creating these antivirals uh, right now and we are testing them out. Where are you testing them? We are doing the uh, work here and we are testing it out with our collaborators in uh, infection models and animal models like mice. Our goal is to be fast-tracked as much as possible. As you know, the COVID crisis has been projected that even out, you know, outwards of, I think, 18 months or so, those effects may still be there. We think we have a shot with our approach. It sounds to me like it might be within the year, within a year and a half, that you might have something that people could actually use as a virus fighter if they get COVID-19. Yeah. So we are making antiviral specific to the virus. And uh, again, as uh, depending on the outcomes of our uh, studies. I'm going to ask you to tell me a secret. You know, because you hear about these Nobel-winning scientists, and there's the movie Contagion, where the scientists to decide to figure out if something is good or not. 
they swallow the vaccine themselves or they inject it into themselves. Have you thought about doing that? Well, you're aware, um, Shelley, that would actually be the shortest path to ensure that nobody else is able to use it because you have to go through regulatory approvals. Without approvals for a short-term or compassionate use, doing something like this would definitely ensure that, A, you can never create anything else, and B, that what you've created would never see the light of the day. I guess I should say it's a good thing you're the scientist and I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because in movies you can take liberties, but, you know, (laughs) as as appealing as it is, you know, it's not just about putting yourself in harm's way. It's about... You're doing it the right way, the right channels, right data process in place yeah. for some reasons some of those are pretty good and well-intentioned but you have to follow the entire process in letter and in spirit otherwise people would have sort of a wilder situation and that's not something you would ideally want but this is a good reality check we created this wonderful uh, broad spectrum antibiotic, something we could put on surfaces and, you know, it'll kill all kinds of microbes. Then we created this wonderful directed precision in a way medicine that could target specific pieces of RNA and DNA and stop this virus in its track. Having all of that in the lab is worth nothing. I repeat, it's worth nothing. Is that frustrating for you? Is that maddening for you? Incredibly yes. frustrating. Yes. And especially when you're sitting at home, far away from work, and thinking all that could have been yeah. and is not, it is the worst agony yeah. that I could yeah. experience. Mm-hmm. And when I look at this, frankly, it makes me question my life choices. It makes me question what I have done and achieved. It makes for a bone-chilling realization of the impact of all that we do in science. So what I can say, at least on my part, is it's made me realize, is it worth sitting in the warm comfort of a job that just allows you to focus on the minimalities in life while thinking that you're creating something? To now, if you see at who is really making an impact, all the diagnostics, everything is coming in from biotech. So what about all the work that we've done? I take the responsibility. Mm-hmm. I think it's a cold realization for anything who claims to have done anything in their lab. Where are those solutions? People have been working on these things for 20, 30, 50 years. Where are the solutions? And now the only people who are bringing in any comfort here are working in the biotech industry. I think it's made me realize what I want to do moving forward and how to create an impact and actually make sure that whatever I do from now on actually sees the light of the day. Mm -hmm. Because with the fast tracking that's happening in FDA, we could potentially have a quick diagnostic test. I, but again, I promised that to my department a year and a half ago where I said, well, let's have a, a short fragment-based diagnostic test that the people, that students could be running in their labs. And had we done that, you know, again, what could have been, we could have had, you know, undergrads running tests like these in their labs, again, because of petty politics, race, nationality, whatever, you know, that that never came to fruition. But it makes me realize, had I gone forward with that, 
that we could have had, you know, a quick diagnostic available in our lab that we could have literally run hundreds, if not thousands of tests and provided some answers. So, uh, you know, a diagnostic test is potentially in horizon for sure. Let me say that with some humility because, you know, we'd have to test it on actual patient samples and see if it meets the standards. But beyond that, I, I to be to be honest, I don't see a therapeutic coming out in a year. Uh, but to your question about would it be ready for the next one, I sincerely hope so. I'm going to make it my mission in life to do this and make sure things come out rather than just be researched in a laboratory having no impact on the life of real uh, people. Well, I hear you saying, Prashant Nagpal, that like all of us other humans, you are looking back and kicking yourself for not having more that you could have done for this particular pandemic that has come across us so quickly But on the other hand, there's a lesson learned here for you where you're looking for a way to take your laboratory discoveries and find ways to put them more out into the world. That, you know, this is again that moment where you're like, yes, we prepared for this. We have created technologies for this, but and we could have helped people at this point. But are we ready for it? If we had the we had, you know, I think I think it's uh, you know important to take the technologies out of the university and and really uh, you know establish them in 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 a in a company and and in you know to be able to work to mass produce to get all the as as you said data the, the approvals uh, uh, and get it out to people and and I think it's a very sincere thought. Um, uh, and um, that's why we've decided that no matter what, we're going to start right now. And that's why we have decided that we'll do whatever we can do in our capacity to help contribute uh, towards a solution, therapeutic and diagnostic for and COVID. Uh, as much as we can, we will push ourselves to do that right now today uh, and hope that we can do something. But in the same process what we are doing ourselves uh, doing is that we are preparing ourselves for also the future and that's a promise i'm shelly schlender our guests have been cu boulder scientists anishree chatterjee and prasant nagpal they encourage all listeners to get involved in creating better antimicrobial treatments by checking out the antimicrobial regeneration consortium they say we need perspectives and ideas of people from all walks of life. We'll provide a link to the Antimicrobial Regeneration Consortium online. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is yours truly, Joel Parker. This week's show was produced jointly by me and Beth Bennett. Additional contributions by Angel Xiong and engineering by Maeve Conran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Tool. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>